Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast. Today we are joined by Martin Dusenberry, Professor for Global History at the University of Zürich. Martin, thank you for being with us. Thanks. And I'm also joined here by Joachim Kurz from Heidelberg, who is hosting this interview. Thanks, Birgit. Martin, one of your recent articles um, talks about the advent of the Pacific Age. So tell us a little bit when the Pacific Age began and what we need to know about it. So the Pacific Age seems to be a term which uh, encapsulates the expansion of America, particularly in the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century. But in fact, it's a term that is coined in Japanese first in 1892 by a youngish man who is not terribly well known. Uh, he was a scholar of sorts. He was a journalist and he ended up being a diplomat. Uh, and then he died rather prematurely in 1908. Um, and what interests me with the Pacific Age, some research has been done on it, but it's sort of right at the heart of some of the things we're interested in, which is the relationship between uh, East Asia and Europe in the coining of a new imagination of the world. What role did the Pacific Age play in this new imagination? Well, it's a very important um, thing to understand in Japanese history, which from the late 19th century tends to be focused more on uh, Japan's relationship to East Asia. And this is partly because we sort of think of Japanese history through the prism of colonialism. And so uh, we think about uh, uh, the colonization of Okinawa first in the 1870s, and then Taiwan in the 1890s, Korea in the 1900s, and of course then China uh, through the 1930s. Um, but it seems to me, and, and I've been thinking this and arguing this with a group of scholars in Japan and elsewhere, that actually the Pacific is very understudied in Japanese history and arguably in East Asian history more generally, and that it's absolutely crucial to try and understand uh, Japan's relationship to the Pacific in the late 19th century and early 20th century, because in many ways, that's actually the prism through which Japanese intellectuals think about East Asia rather than the other way around. So you're arguing that Japan is not only looking to East Asia, but it's looking to the wider Pacific world. How can we reconstruct Japan's activities in this wider Pacific world? Well, I think the first thing to note is that the Pacific is a site of Japanese expansion from the 1860s onwards. Um, there's Japanese interest in uninhabited islands in the Pacific for prestige purposes, for resource purposes, particularly for fertilizer, uh, for the newly industrializing Japan. And then from the 1880s onwards, there's a particular interest in sending Japanese overseas in order to try and alleviate the perceived problem of overpopulation at home. So there's an increasing number of Japanese who are engaged with the Pacific economically, militarily, uh, in terms of migration and labor. Uh, and in many ways, the term the Pacific Age is playing catch up with a new reality in the Pacific rather than coining something that then people react to. And that's why I'm interested in it. Mm. Can you tell us some of the places where Japanese migrants went to? Yeah, sure. So the very first... Um, small group of Japanese migrants goes to Hawaii in 1868, uh, almost exactly as the revolution is taking place in Japan. But they're pretty badly treated, many of them on the sugar plantations of Hawaii. And so the new Meiji government basically says, we don't allow ordinary Japanese to go overseas. Uh, because the perception is that they will be treated like slaves or like 
uh, so-called coolies, and this would mean that the Japanese are bracketed like the Chinese. There's a huge trade in Chinese so-called coolies at this period, and this is not something that a civilizing nation wants. It doesn't want to be associated with Chinese coolies. It wants to say, we have overseas labor migrants. And so there's a ban uh, then until the mid-1880s, when then uh, thousands of Japanese start going to Hawaii on a new government-sponsored program, and that's the beginning of a mass migration of Japan, which uh, eventually goes not only to Hawaii, but to the west coast of America, and then in the 1900s to Latin America, to Brazil, where is still the largest population of overseas Japanese today, uh, and Peru, uh, also to Australia, and then, of course, to Micronesia and some of the colonies of Southeast Asia. How can we follow their tracks? It appears to me that it must be very, very difficult because some of them may not have been literate. Others um, may have been literate, but maybe they didn't leave any sources. And generally, um, these groups of people, like Chinese coolies that I know a bit more of, it, it's very hard to trace their steps. How do you do that? Yeah, that's challenging. I think it gets to one of the key issues in global history for me, which is how do we write about people who don't leave traces? Uh, and this is not generally a problem that we have in intellectual history. And so uh, it requires, I think, different types of um, questions about what is an archive? How do we create an archive between, for example, one line saying that someone left Japan in 1885 and another line saying they arrived in Hawaii two weeks later? And that's more or less the only record we have for a particular individual. And so there's also sort of methodological challenges that arise from it. But I think actually increasingly, as I was thinking about this, I come from a social history background, I realized it's also important to think about how is this space being imagined? Um, and that's how I then ended up getting interested in this whole idea of the Pacific age of actually what are intellectuals um, calling this area? Because there is a symbiotic relationship between uh, the bigger rhetoric or discourse of the Pacific and the fact that these thousands of peoples are going uh, going overseas to, to work on sugar plantations and so on. You just said uh, you're dealing with problems that you don't have in intellectual history. So I was wondering, can you say a bit about how this intellectual interacts? It's the flow of ideas, of thoughts between the different worlds. So I think one of the things that has been very interesting for me thinking about intellectual history for the first time and learning from you guys has been to try and think about... Um, you know, to an outsider, we simply say, oh, somebody read a book and were influenced by uh, what they read, and then they came up with a new idea, and that's the end of the story. And particularly with this phrase, the Pacific Age, it's obviously more complicated than that, but it does take in uh, a lot of different areas of the world. There is Cambridge University, uh, then there is, of course, uh, the fact that the The person who coined this phrase is a, is a guy called Inagaki Manjiro. Uh, he's also very interested in Southeast Asia, in what Japan called the South Seas, Nanyo, which is a sort of nebulous area of the Southwest Pacific. Uh, and all of these elements need to be brought to play when we're thinking about um, what this particular term means. And there are sources for doing that in intellectual history. And is that what you refer to as sites of citation? In my essay yet. I take this term from uh, Chris Manjapra's work, uh, who in turn takes it from another scholar. But his basic argument is that um, when we're doing uh, global intellectual history, it requires different methodologies. It requires us to be more aware of the methodologies that we're using. Uh, and 
one idea that he puts forward is to say that we should trace uh, exactly where particular ideas are being produced and who is producing them, uh, and that that changes across time. And when you start following the journey of how an idea goes from A to B, uh, you become much more aware of the material, economic, social context of the uh, rhetoric that is being produced and you, you stop thinking in terms of this abstract history of ideas and you start thinking about the relationship between what's happening on the ground and what people are writing in books. But then the problem remains how do we connect the fragments because it's very very rare that you find the smoking gun that says well I read, I read this book and therefore I had this idea. So we have these resonances at different sites of citation if you will but how do we put these sites on a map? How can we map out the intellectual space um, that we do? Well I think The, the Pacific Age is a very interesting example of this because one can trace this guy Inagaki. He's born in Hirado, which is a domain in Western Japan, uh, which David Mervart, who is also part of this podcast, has done a lot of work on. He goes to Cambridge University in 1885 and he studies with the preeminent historian, really in Great Britain at that time, uh, Sir John Seeley. Um, and Inagaki's first book, which is published five years later, is basically his BA thesis. It's published in English, and he explicitly cites Seeley. The book is called Japan and the Pacific, um, and you can see that this is the first stage of Inagaki trying to work through um, Seeley's way of imagining European history, which was articulated most famously in a book he'd written in the 1880s called The Expansion of England. And so although Inagaki is not directly saying England is uh, the same as Japan, one can see that as he's beginning to think about Japan's future relationship to the Pacific, uh, he's playing with this idea of expansion in world history. It's just he's talking about the Pacific, whereas Celia was talking about the Atlantic world in the 18th century. So there's one case in which you can say, all right, quite clearly this Japanese student is reading his English professor. The Japanese student then goes back to Japan in 1891, uh, but then he's engaging with a lot of other scholars, journalists, intellectuals in early 1890s Japan. And you can see all of this feeding into then this articulation of the phrase Uh, the Pacific Age, Taihei or Jidai, in 1892. I feel like Birgit and I somewhat lured you into a trap because now we've talked a lot about intellectual history. I, I would have imagined that you would have much rather talked about ships and actual people in the making of the Pacific world for Japan. So maybe we allow you to do a little bit of that before we guide you back to intellectual history. Well, I think it's just to say that my interest originally in the Pacific world is in this understudied history of people who move. There are other scholars who are working increasingly on uh, science, on fishing, uh, on the search for new resources in the Pacific world. But my interest has always been in migration. And this is uh, a field that is understudied in Japan as well, partly because of this divider I mentioned where most uh, uh, historiographical interest is on, on East Asia, in this period, um, and also because there aren't great sources for some of the mechanics of how these people moved. Like, what ships did they travel in? Uh, what happened when they arrived in the plantations in a place like Hawaii? What were their interactions with native Hawaiians, for example? Um, and this is the focus of work that I'm doing at the moment on 
uh, migrant ships, on what happened on the ships, on uh, how the migrants imagined their new life in Hawaii, what kind of songs were they singing, what do these songs tell us about the ways that they saw the world, because they were, many of them, illiterate and didn't leave diaries or any other evidence that we can look at. And what would be interesting in the future is to try and bring together these Cambridge-trained intellectual histories and things like songs from the plantation in Hawaii and say, well, what does this tell us about a worldview of Japan's relationship to the Pacific in the late 19th, early 20th centuries? You say we as historians have to be much more aware of the complexities of global history, but I think we also have to make our readers a little bit more aware of that. Can you give us an example of a form of writing that adequately reflects the fragmentary nature of the experiences of many of your protagonists? So the word for me is fragmentary. One can write a form of history which is fragmentary and says, uh, I have this piece of evidence, I have this piece of evidence, and you put them together. And in some ways, you let the readers uh, fill the gaps between the sections. That's one thing you can do, a kind of montage style. Um, one can also be much more explicit about who you are as the historian doing the work. I've, I've written on the testimony of a Japanese woman who was arrested in Thursday Island in uh, Queensland, Australia, in the late 1890s. And all that uh, she has left to historians is a testimony about how she got to Thursday Island. It's left in the first person. I, Usa Hashimoto, came to Thursday Island, but that is that first-person testimony is actually a translation in English of what was clearly Japanese testimony. So already, when we're getting her first-person voice, it's filtered through the person who's interviewing her, through the translator, and then, of course, it's being filtered through us as a historian. So it seems to me one of the things we have to do is also say, who am I as the historian? Because the way I will read her testimony is different from someone else. And I think we have to bring that to the table when we're talking about global history as well. Coming back to the Pacific Age then, is that a story that needs to be told in a more experimental fashion or can you write that as a conventional historical essay? I think that depends on who you ask. In fact, in this case, I've written it as a completely traditional essay in the European style, as it were, because uh, I think this is the most appropriate way of telling this story about how an idea is sort of, as it were, co-produced between uh, Japan, Britain, in this case, and the movement of thousands of Japanese across the Pacific. But actually, in the case of the Pacific Age, it seems to me the issue is less the writing of the, the history, in other words, how we write it, more the focus on the Pacific, because I think the Pacific is often uh, ignored in global histories. One hears about areas, uh, South Asia, th Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and the Pacific sort of comes as, an, as, a, as a last, almost forgotten region here. And it's just an absolutely crucial arena for history in the late 19th and, of course, into the 20th century. Uh, and this is why I think uh, Japan's engagement with the Pacific world uh, has important things to tell us also about the Asia-Pacific region more generally today. Mm -hmm.